We're turning now to an epidemic that is taking three lives in this country every hour. The abuse of opioids. Turn our focus to mental health. Has been a significant rise in major depression. Anxiety is on the rise with so many people. Clinical depression is a health condition that can affect anyone of any age, including children. Half of young adults, 18 to 25, had experienced either substance use or a mental health disorder. Mental health among teenage girls is plummeting. 57% of girls reported feeling persistently sad or hopeless. Self-neglect leading to burnout. The rate of major depression has continued to increase. Nearly one out of every three American adults reported having symptoms of anxiety or depression. Increase of poor mental health. Shelter Cove, I love you guys. It's great to see you. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. If 1 Peter 5 looks familiar, it's because we were in that text last weekend. Pastor Kevin gave a, a great sermon on anxiety. What we'll do today is just walk that text out a little bit further. Uh, and as Jeremy said, the topic on the table today is addiction. And, and addiction is just a giant mental health issue. It is a giant spiritual issue to fight and contend with. And here's what makes it so tricky. Here's what makes it uh, so diabolical. Um, addiction is usually the mental health issue that comes with some other mental health issue. Usually addiction starts because we're trying to fix some kind of experience or negative emotion we don't want to feel. And, and so what happens is we turn to something that can be a person, a substance, a behavior. We turn to something that we hope is going to make it feel better. And oftentimes in the beginning, it does. This is what makes it tricky. It's like it, it's a coping mechanism that actually kind of helps in the beginning. And then it consumes us. If you talk to people in recovery, they'll say things like, my addiction is the one thing that makes me feel good and it is simultaneously the very thing that's killing me, which makes it a really tricky knot to untie. Now, when we say addiction, I need to make sure we're all on the same page, that we all are starting from the same launching point. I'm speaking about addiction in the classical sense, meaning... It is a set of behaviors or one particular behavior that you cannot stop despite repeated efforts and despite mounting consequences. That's addiction. Something we can't stop even though you've tried and even though there's increased negative consequences. With that understanding of addiction, you should start to see that the scope of addiction is way bigger than just drugs and alcohol. If you came in here thinking addiction only applies to substance abuse, you are lying to yourself. You are what the Bible would call being foolish. Because in the United States, there is a buffet of addictions out there for us. Like right now, without a doubt, one of the greatest addictions in the West is internet pornography. You feel the room get a little weird right there? It's okay. It's okay. I'll tell you why it's okay in just a moment, but let's make no mistake. If the statistics are clear, one third of all internet searches are for pornography. Internet pornography generates more money than the MLB, the NHL, the NFL, and the NBA combined. It is one of the most common cited reasons for the disillusion of marriage. If it's not porn, it's gambling. If it's not gambling, it's substance abuse, drugs and alcohol. 
If it's not substance abuse, it's this little cute phrase that we came up with to hide a really dark demon called retail therapy. The average American, $10,000, $11,000 in debt. On average, seven to eight credit cards maxed out, and we're trying to make ourselves feel better by buying a pair of shoes that within a year we're going to probably get rid of. There's something spiritual happening there. You're a fool if you think that there's not spiritual dynamics at play there. If it's not retail therapy, it's food. If it's not food, it's fitness. If it's not fitness, it's that little glowing rectangle in your purse or pocket that has turned the masses into dopamine addicts. Have I sufficiently offended all of you yet? I can keep going. Let's not think it's just substances. It's way, way bigger. So here's how we wrestle this giant to the floor. Listen, I'm not an addiction therapist. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist. I have zero business masquerading as one today. What I am is a student of the book. And I want to give you what the book says. Because the scriptures say it's the word that sanctifies us. It's the word that trains us in righteousness. And it does not return void. It pierces to the deepest parts of our soul so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to give you the word, and I want to give you it from a perspective where, for me, addiction is not theoretical. Addiction, for me, was personal, experiential, I was first exposed to internet pornography when I was 11 years old. This was back in like the dial-up days. We were like cavemen living back then. It was wild. It was primitive. And, and you might as well have given little 11-year-old Chad a, a crack pipe. I was hooked. And, and that habit, that addiction led to all kinds of other sexual sin and deviancy. And here's the thing, if you haven't learned this yet about sexual sin, let me put you up on some game and give you a cheat code to life. Sexual sin brings with it all kinds of baggage. Heartache, insecurity, drama, complications, it brings all kinds of drama into your life. And so to cope with all of that baggage, I soon found smoking pot would make all of my guilt and shame and complications go away and became a functional pothead for about eight years of my life. Smoking weed seven, eight times a day, all day, every day. That was my life for years until King Jesus started running my wayward heart down. So what I'm gonna share with you today is not theoretical to me. This is experiential. It's from the book and it's steps I've walked and I am still walking, okay? With all that being said, would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? We're gonna go 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. Here's how it reads. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you for these men and women. I pray, Spirit of God, you would teach them now. You encourage, you correct, you break chains that I simply cannot break. And I pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to tell you what I'm, I'm hoping to do today. Out of this text, I have three tactics to fight against addiction. And I chose that verbiage very specifically, fight against addiction. I do not want to come up here and portray these points as like some silver bullet magic potion remedy to, to addiction because addiction's complex. It's very difficult to un untangle. I'm leery. I'm leery of any sermons where people get up and go, seven steps to never be addicted. I'm like, uh, I just don't know if things are that simple. So here are some tools, some tactics that, that I have personally walked out that might help you because this will be a fight. It's not going to be clean and easy and simple. Tactic number one, the way up is down. The way up is down. What do I mean? I mean what First Peter said here. He made it real clear. Humble yourselves, therefore. Now, anytime in the Bible you see a therefore, you know what you need to do? You need to ask, why is the therefore, therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? Back in verse five, he said, God opposes the proud. He opposes those who think, I got it. I got it all figured out. I'm fine on my own. I'm smart enough. I'm capable enough. He opposes those but he gives grace to the humble. The first step in fighting against addiction is to humble yourself. Humbling yourself doesn't mean beating yourself up. A lot of people think that to be humble means I gotta sit in that chair and go, I'm stupid, I'm I can't do this, I'm dumb, I can't. That's not humility. In fact, that's usually what the enemy does to you. He'll say those things about you. True biblical humility starts with you admitting you're not that smart. That's where humility starts. It starts by admitting your thinking isn't all that great. You wanna know why? Because as awesome as you and I are, made in the image of God, God's masterpiece, yes and amen to that, we are also infected with sin. We have inherited sin from Adam and Eve and it screws up our thinking. Theologians call this the noetic effect of sin. We think we know the right way to go, but it gets us killed. That's Proverbs 14 and 16. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. So Peter says, no, 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 you're not that smart. You need to admit you're not that smart. If you've been through recovery or you know someone who's been through recovery, they use this phrase quite often, your best thinking got you here. Your best thinking got you trapped. Your best thinking got you addicted. Your best thinking got you enslaved. You need better thinking. You need thinking outside of yourself. You need Christ to call the shots. And that's where we start. Now, if I was sitting in those chairs, if I was sitting right where you are, here's what I would be thinking. I'd be going, man, dude, you're coming out of the gates a little bit hot here. You don't even know who I am. You just stood up on that stage and said, my brain doesn't work right. Let me, let me give you a couple of things to consider because once again, if I was you, I'd probably be sitting there and going, yeah, okay, so I drink a little bit. I get drunk every once in a while, so what? Yeah, 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 okay, so I, I look at porn every once in a while. It's not that big of a deal. Smoke a little pot here and there. It's not that big of a deal. I got it under control. I, I gamble a little bit. I spend a little bit too much. Maybe I scroll a little bit too much. I got it under control. It's not that big of a deal. Let me share two things with you I had to learn the hard way. 
Number one, sin never takes just an inch. Never. It's insatiable. It always takes the mile. One of the first descriptions we see about sin in Genesis 4, sin is described as crouching at the door, ready to pounce, and its desire is to overtake you. So yeah, you can sit there and go, it's not that big of a deal. I got it under control. You're being tricked because sin has no problem playing the long game. Sin has no problem taking 30, 40, 50 years and just slowly micro-slicing your soul to pieces. No problem doing that. Almost imperceptibly, you can't feel that it's killing you. And then let me ask you a couple of questions here. That behavior you think is not a very big deal? I got it under control. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you have to practice that behavior in secrecy? Do you have to sneak around? You got to sneak some beers in the garage? You got your stash of liquor somewhere in the house? You got to hide your credit card statements? Are you frantically clearing your browser history? Are you frantically erasing text messages and DMs? Because if you got to do this in secrecy, it's got a way bigger hold on you than you think. Has somebody said to you, I'm worried? Has somebody said, I see this in your life and I'm concerned? And you said to them, no, 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 I got it, I'm fine. It's a bigger deal than you think. Has this behavior caused Fighting, separation, lack of trust between you and your loved ones? Because if so, it's probably a bigger deal than you think. So we start here. We humble ourselves. Now, most sermons go like this. A pastor will preach for a while, and then at the end of the sermon, they'll give like one step for you to do. And, and I want to try something a little bit different today. You see, I want to save us from being people who hear the word passively and we don't ever actively do something with it. So I want to give you time and space right here, right now to respond. Don't worry. We're not going to make you hold hands and sing kumbaya. We're not going to take a second offering. We're not going to do anything weird, okay? We want to just give you space right here to respond to what the book just said. And here's specifically how I want to lead you. On the screens, we'll put this up here. In prayer, humble yourself. Humble yourself before God and ask for his help. In the best way you know how, it doesn't have to be clean, it doesn't have to be perfect, your prayers could be awkward and clumsy, but in the best way you know how, go, God, I, I, my thinking stinks, I need you to lead, I need you to take more control. Because I don't wanna be a church that hears the word but doesn't do anything with it. So right now, in this moment, take 45 seconds, 60 seconds, be with the Lord, and then I'll close us in prayer and move us to the next point, okay? Be with the Lord.
Lord, you are very clear that you oppose the proud. But you got a real sweet spot in your heart for those who are humble. Those who realize their thinking doesn't work and, and that they need help. So right here, God, as we come, awkward, clumsy, all kinds of baggage, God, in the best way we know how, we're trying to humble ourselves. Help us to be soft-hearted before you. We ask for your grace to help us, Lord, now. Take, take more control, God. And we pray this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Uh, as we move from tactic one to tactic two, there's this beautiful verse in verse seven. Pastor Kevin last week gave an awesome sermon on verse seven. And, and I wish I had time to expound on all of this, but here's all I want to say. The invitation all through the Bible is for us to take our anxieties and put them on to the Lord. And if you are struggling with anxiety, I would highly commend his sermon that's available on our website and in our app. Let me show you tactic two here. You gotta think like your enemy. Think like your enemy. In the words of the theologians, rage against the machine, you gotta know your enemy. Here's what the passage says, verse eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, so let's pull this passage apart. It starts by saying, be sober-minded. What does that mean? Does it mean you can't ever have a glass of wine? No, it's not what it means. Now, some of you are alcoholics. You should never touch alcohol. Be foolish for you to do that. But biblically speaking, Jesus drinks wine. His disciples drink wine. Paul instructs Timothy to have a glass of wine for his stomach ailments. There is a biblical, godly way to enjoy alcohol that doesn't lead to sin. Okay? What the text is saying here is don't be dominated, don't be controlled, don't be overpowered by a substance. People have asked me, can you smoke pot and be a Christian? And I always say to them, not for very long. You can start there, but very soon you're going to have to decide who's really in control of your heart and mind. Is it a substance or is it the Savior? This is what the text is saying. Christians should be characterized by clear-minded, focused, sober-minded. We think clearly. That's what we should be characterized by. Then it says, be watchful, because your enemy is hunting you. He is stalking you like a lion stalks his prey. So I work with a bunch of guys that love to duck hunt. I have never duck hunted a day in my life. From what I can tell, it looks like you gotta get up really early. It looks really wet and really cold. I think I'm out. My dry, warm bed at 4 a.m. looks a lot better than your duck blind, so I think I'm going to stay out. But anyways, they talk all the time about ducks, what the ducks are doing, how the ducks are flying. They're following migration patterns. They know that when it rains, the ducks are going to do something specific. When it's dry, they know the ducks are going to do something specific. Different decoys, different duck calls. I mean, they're all about it. And what dawned on me is these guys that hunt ducks, they know the psychology of these birds. They know how they're going to behave. They know how to draw them in. They know how to prey upon the duck's mind. Peter just called Satan a hunting lion. Look, we are, we are fooling ourselves if we think we can outsmart our enemy who has had millennia, thousands and thousands of years to study human behavior. He knows how to hunt us really well. And especially when it comes to addiction, our enemy knows all of the triggers, all of the buttons to push, 
all of the spiritual pressure points. He knows every single one to push that drive us into the arms of our addiction. And it's different for everyone. For some of you, it's loneliness. For some of you, it's boredom. For some of you, it's trauma you suffered in your past. And when those memories surface to your mind, it sends you running to the bottle, sends you running to food, sends you running to your phone. He knows how to hunt us. This begs the question, well, then how do we fight back against a masterful hunter? Well, he told us, be sober-minded. Look, you're easy prey if you're intoxicated. You're easy to hunt. He said, be watchful. Be on the lookout. You've got to know what your weak spots are. You've got to know what your triggers are. You need to know what are your spiritual pressure points. What are the things he pushes on and it sends you running to your addiction instead of to the Lord? Because if you don't know that, if you can't name that, you're easy prey. Then he takes it one step further in verse nine. In verse nine, he gives very practical help. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter appeals here to community. He's like, listen, man, you got brothers and sisters all over the globe that are in the fight with you. Lock arms together. Galatians 6, man, you got to bear one another's burdens. You got to have each other's backs. We can't be fighting against each other. We've got a masterful hunter out there coming for us. I've been fortunate enough to go to Africa and actually watch lions hunt their prey. It is unbelievable. It's so cool. And you know what they do? Lions bum rush the herd. They're not trying to attack the herd. What they're trying to do is get one animal to break off from the herd and get isolated. And then they pounce on that single solo animal and they rip its throat out. It's the gangster, most gangster thing ever. It's so cool to watch. This is how our enemy hunts. You're easy prey when you're alone. You're easy prey when you're isolated. You're easy prey when you come into church and you play the church game, you wear your little golf polo, you sing the songs, but nobody actually knows you. You're easy prey. Coming to church is great, yes and amen, but if you're not actively seeking deep community where you know people and they know you, you're easy to hunt. You gotta be in your herd. You gotta have your group because there's protection in the herd. So once again, I don't wanna just lay this before you and then we don't do anything with it. That's foolish. I wanna give you some time and some space right now to respond. And here's how I would lead you in this response. What are your spiritual pressure points? What are those triggers? What are those things about you Satan knows that he keeps pushing on and it sends you running to your addiction. Name them, and then a simple confession, a prayer. God, here's where I'm weak. Protect me, help me here. And then find your community. Listen, we gave you a handout when you walked in here full of all kinds of groups we're starting. You wanna know what I love about this church? We're starting a group for people that are addicted to porn. Like I love that this church is going, hey, we know the problems out there. We're sick of hiding from it. We're gonna take the light of the gospel into the grittiest, grimiest places. You're addicted to porn, welcome, man. You're, you're safe here, it's okay here. We were too and we found the way out. Come on, we'll show you. I love that about this church. So I wanna give you 45 seconds, give you maybe a minute to be with the Lord. What are those weak spots? Where can you find your, your group? 
Take some time, be with the Lord, and I'll close this. Father, I thank you that you describe yourself as, as a shepherd. You're a good shepherd. You, you protect your sheep. So here we come. We, we've got weak spots, God. We've got areas that, that Satan just preys upon. We need protection. We need defense. We need you to heal us. Um, help us to find our group. I know that's hard. Uh, finding community is awkward. It's a challenge. It gets us out of the comfort zone. Help us to do it. Lest we die, get isolated, and just become easy prey. Protect us, strengthen us now. In Christ's name, amen. Tactic one, the way up is down. Tactic two, you need to think like your enemy. Tactic three, grow through grace. Grow through grace. I, hear me, I need your eyeballs. I didn't say grow through your own effort. I did not say grow through you white knuckling more. I did not say grow through guilt I didn't say grow through shame. I didn't say grow because your spouse is nagging you. None of that stuff sustains. None of that stuff will run the long race. It won't last. Grace does. Let me show you what the book says. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. Okay, stop. We've got work to do. There are a lot of people selling a version of Christianity that's not real. They're selling a version of Christianity that says Jesus is like your little butler that exists to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. And that's not Christianity. Does Jesus bless? Yes. But does he also promise difficulty? Yes. Listen, Christianity will be hard. You're going to fight sin. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be doubt. There's going to be dark nights of the soul, and it's worth every single step. It's worth every moment. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, circle that phrase, underline that phrase, put a smiley face next to that phrase, show your neighbor, hey, look how awesome this phrase is, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Let me tell you about the single differentiating theological idea from Christianity and every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world teaches some version of this. You got to achieve, you've got to earn, you've got to perform, you've got to do X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C, one, two, and three to be good enough for God. Christianity says the exact opposite. Christianity is actually offensive to your morality. It calls your morality filthy rags. I'll let you look up what it actually is in the Hebrew. The English is way more sanitized. Your best day, your best effort, your best morality, offensive before God. That puts us in a real big pickle. So you know what he did? God Almighty 
Not an errand boy, not an angel, not a lesser than version of God. God in the second person of the Trinity, Christ Almighty, came down to earth. He condescended and became one of us. And he did something spectacular. He took upon himself the punishment, the penalty, the guilt we should have suffered. Christ on the cross vicariously substitutes himself for us. The perfect one is treated like he's imperfect. The righteous one is treated like he's unrighteous. The one who was without sin was treated as if he had every sin you and I have ever committed. What's happening on the cross is God Almighty is emptying the full wrath, the full judgment for our sins, except on the Christ. Why? Because of that little word, grace. Because for some reason, and I still can't understand why, but for some reason, he really loves you and I. He's not obligated to. He doesn't have to. But for some reason, he loves us. A bunch of knuckle-headed sinners he loves and delights in us. And he would rather suffer brutal punishment on the cross than see us go to hell without a fighting chance. So he comes down and joyfully takes upon himself the full vent of God's wrath. I think the clearest gospel verse in all of the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is why the Puritans wrote prayers like this. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Christ was cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, thirsty that I might drink rivers of living water, made a shame that I might inherit glory. My Savior wept that all my tears would be wiped dry. My Savior bore a thorny crown that I might wear a heavenly one. My Savior expired that I might live forever. Why did he do this? Because you started going to church and cleaning your act up and you got sober and you started tithing? No, he did this when you were sinning. He did this while you were far off. He did this while you were addicted. He did this while you relapsed. He did this when you were way far gone because he loves you. This is the gospel. This is grace. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion is this idea that by simple childlike faith, you and I are made right with God, not because of our performance. Here's where grace gets really practical. Like if I asked you, what, when you get to heaven, what are you gonna say to God? He goes, hey, so-and-so, why should I let you in? If your answer is because I, because I did this, because I believe this, because I said this, you're already on the wrong track. The only proper answer is because Christ, because Jesus. Now, when you preach a grace this big, when you preach a grace, a gospel that's this encompassing, it wipes all of our sin clean, past, present, and future. It liberates us from the shackles of our condemnation. When you preach a grace that big and aggressive, people get nervous. Because they go, well, it sounds like you're making it easy for us to go sin. But listen, grace doesn't just stop with salvation. 
Titus 2.11 says grace trains us to say no to ungodliness. Let me show you the text here. It's right here in the text. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So tell me, let me ask you a question. Does that sound like God saves us by miraculous, glorious grace and then just leaves us wallowing in our sin? Or does it sound like he saves us by glorious grace and then by his power, he starts to change our earthly identity more into our heavenly identity? That's what the text is saying. So here's how that played out in my own life. Grace is not always gentle. Sometimes grace is a little bit abrasive. Because as God started to show me, son, your sins are wiped clean. You are held firm in my grip. I will never let you go. All that junk in your past that makes you cringe, all that sin right now that haunts you, stuff coming in your future you don't even know about. Chad, it's all wiped clean. Rest in what I've done. When he started to do that in my soul, you want to know what else he started to do? He started to expose my sin. (laughs) He started to bust me. The Bible says the Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord must love your boy quite a bit. Some of you have been exposed recently. Some of you are about to get exposed. It's not God's wrath when he exposes you. It's not. It's his grace. It's the God of the universe saying, son, daughter, I love you too much. I will not leave you in that sin. I'm going to cut this thing out. It's going to be painful. I love you too much, though. I'm going to walk you out of this. So for me, man, when, when my porn got, addiction got exposed, you know what that led me to do? It led me to confession. It led me to get accountability on my phone, on my computer. It led to regular meetings with people to check in with me. Same thing with porn, man, or with uh, pot. It led me to re- refuse to hang out with my old friends who were getting high all the time. Like, the grace of God isn't just up in the sky. It's, it's boots on the ground. It's practical. It's actual steps of righteousness. So once again, I, I want to try to respond here. And I want to respond together this time. We'll do this together. I have two questions as we end. Is the grace of God real in your life? Let me say that a different way. Have you been trying over and over and over to be good enough for God only to find yourself fail over and over and over? If that's the pattern you're stuck in, trying to be better, trying to be good, trying to earn it only to fail and then you feel like he hates you, let me invite you into the actual biblical way. The actual biblical way is to rest. He did it for you. Your salvation's secured. It's done. Brother, sister, breathe out and let Christ be Christ. He did it for you. It's done. Is that grace real for you, or are you still trying to earn it? And then for some of you, that grace is real, and you have been growing. You have been walking. But sin's real tricky. Addiction is especially tricky. Let me ask you this next question. This next question says, motivated by God's grace. What practical step can you take to fight back? 
because grace doesn't stay up in the clouds. It doesn't stay ethereal and far away. Grace gets practical. It trains us to say no. What's a step you can take now to fight against your addiction? Is it getting accountability on your phone and, and your computers? Is it confessing to someone who's safe? I'm struggling here. Can you pray for me and check in with me? Is it joining a group? I don't know what it will be for you, but you do. My prayer is that you'd be wise enough to take that step. Let's pray. God, thank you for these men and women. My prayer right now, Lord, is for those souls who have heard the grace of God in a new way, like a way that was fresh, a way that, like they heard it with ears that hear. My prayer right now, Lord, is that, that they would turn and make that grace their own. If that is where you are, let me just lead you in a, a gentle way here. There's no magical prayer. There's no magical phrase you have to say. The Lord is so good at hearing the cry of a humble heart, of a quiet heart that goes, God, I need you. My thinking stinks. My thinking's getting me into the wrong areas, Lord. I, I've got weak spots. I need you to take all my sin off of me. I need you to take all my condemnation off. I need you to save me and give me the forgiveness you promised you'd give me. And if that is where you are, it's just a simple prayer like that. Save me, rescue me, I need you. God, I thank you for what you're gonna do in this church, what you already are doing in this church. And um, God, for those souls praying that right now, calling to you for help, uh, God, I, I pray that you'd give them the courage after we close here to come up and get baptized. Because that's what we see all through the Bible. People turn to Christ and then they get baptized. And I pray we would live the New Testament right here, right now. And I pray this in Christ's wonderful name. And all God's people said, amen.